Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. Welcome back to part two of the story of arts and entertainment critic, multi-Emmy winning queen of the red carpet, and three-time cancer survivor, Joyce Culhaywick. Once a high school English teacher, she would become a member of the ensemble cast of Evening Magazine, a TV show that was so successful it was copied in TV markets across the country. Joyce would also be tapped as the first full-time arts and entertainment reporter, male or female, in major market television news, rising to national status as a co-host for syndicated movie review shows like Hot Ticket. Joyce is the consummate storyteller. And as we sat in her dining room, practicing social distancing, I couldn't wait to ask her about the A-listers she has spoken to along the way. And wow, did she have stories. One huge favorite leaps to mind, and it's leaps is the right verb here, because he was a very famous ballet dancer, the very first Russian ballet star who defected to the United States, and that would be Rudolf Nureyev. If you don't know who that is, please look him up. But he was a trailblazer, phenomenal Russian ballet dancer, predated Barishnikov. He was performing in Saratoga and was on his way to Boston. And I wanted to get the jump on his performance in Boston. So WBZ flew me out to meet him and interview him in Saratoga, upstate New York. It was a big undertaking. We spent a good deal of money to get me there ahead of time. And I get there and his people look at me and say, well, we'll find out if Mr. Nuriev wants to do this interview. And I said, what? What do you mean? I'm here. He agreed. We're doing it. Well, you know. So they went over to Mr. Nuriev and they're talking to him and he's looking over their shoulder at me and sizing me up and they turn around and say, okay, he'll do it. But whatever you do, this has to be quick. And he gets bored very easily. So if he's not interested, he'll just get up and leave. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all right. So I said, well, if it has to be fast, I'll race Mr. Nuriev to the lawn. And I started running up the lawn. And he then looked at me, and I think it just caught him by surprise because <laughs> I was a little bit miffed. And he ran up the aisle of the auditorium. It was an outside performing arts stage. And we met out on the lawn and we sat outside and we proceeded to have a fabulous one-on-one interview because he, all credit to him, was a real artist and really the art meant more to him than anything. And he talked about the passion with which he danced and what it came from. And I was so engaged and excited. And then I realized, wow, this is like more than 20 minutes and I probably should wrap this up. I said, Mr. Nuria, thank you so very much for this. And I reached out to shake his hand and he reached out and shook my hand. And then I leaned back in my chair and I kept right on going. (laughs) And my whole chair fell backwards. My legs went flying up in the air past the camera and I'm lying on my back on the ground outside staring at the sky. (laughs) And my cameraman's leaning over me saying, Joyce, Joyce, get up, get up. And I glance over and there's Nuriev looking at me and laughing. And I looked at him and said, well, if Mr. Nuriev would stop laughing and help me up, I'd do it. He leapt from his chair, reached out, grabbed my hand, lifted me up and said, ah, an arabesque. And I said, you can borrow that anytime. (laughs) What a great story. The lesson to me is always get up. (laughs) 
Don't be afraid to get back up on your feet and keep going. It's it was, not how you fall down. It's how you get it's back up. It's how you get game. back up. And boy, that is the truth. That is the truth. What is star power? Oh, I'll tell you what star power is. For the audience, it's when you can't take your eyes off someone and you don't know why. It may have nothing to do with how attractive they are, with how well they speak, with what they're wearing, with what they're saying. It's something that grabs you about a person that you just can't look away. And I think what it comes from is a person's own conviction about who they are and what it is they're doing in that moment. What is it like to cover the Academy Awards, <laughs> being on a red carpet, the Grammys, the CMAs, the Tonys, you have done them all. The best red carpet, the Oscars. I nearly passed out being on the Oscars just from the excitement of it, but I quickly didn't pass out and then was carried away on the sheer glamour of the thing. I mean, to see all in one fell swoop within a radius of, you know, the distance you and I are sitting from each other now. Within six feet all around, there's Tom Cruise, there's Nicole Kidman, there's Jack Nicholson, there's Clint Eastwood, there's Salma Hayek, there's Jennifer Lopez, here comes Ben Affleck, there goes Renee Zellweger. It's mind-blowing. Here comes Beyonce. I mean, it's crazy. This is what's so amazing about that night. They're all a little bit equal and leveled by the experience. None of them knows if they've won. They're all a little nervous. They're all there as pals and equals with each other, collegially. And sometimes they're fans of one another. They're fans of one another. Exactly. Their fans are screaming in the stands and they're excited they're all celebrating. It is a really unique, exciting time. And they really talk to you. And it's just great. On the other side of that, there are the hard stories. And these are the huge responsibilities that are placed on a person who's on the scene for something like the death of Princess Diana. Can you talk about that? That was an extraordinary occurrence. And I felt like I had to be there. I felt like I had to be there. And, you know, I've crossed over to some extent. It wasn't arts and entertainment at all. But I felt that I really wanted to be there because of the profound impact she'd had on so many people as a persona. And I pitched that to my news director, who agreed that if I felt that strongly about it, I had to be the one to go. And he sent me. And I will never forget the feeling of being in London and everybody from the cab driver who delivered me to Kensington Palace to just people walking down the street, we're talking weeping, crying, everybody from every strata visibly mourning this woman. And then getting to Kensington Palace and being stunned by what was there. I had seen the flowers that were arrayed on the lawn outside the palace where she lived. I saw that the ground was covered. What I didn't know until I got there was that that bed of flowers was about five feet deep. We had flowers on top of flowers on top of flowers. It was 
like nothing I've ever seen before in my life. And then to stand on that corner and watch those young princes with their father, just in this cloud of sadness and shock, it was clear they were in shock. It was devastating. Ground zero, 9-11. That was like nothing else. I was flying into New York that morning with Lisa Hughes. We were going for a fashion consultation on a bright, sunny Tuesday morning, perfect day. crystal clear day. And we landed 15 minutes before the terrorists crashed those planes. We got into a limo because the taxi line was so long and we had an appointment. We were driving in. Lisa looks up through the windshield and we see the World Trade Center. She says, oh, it looks like there's a fire in the World Trade Center. Wow. I better call in. I said, yeah, imagine being here for this story. Ha! Little did we know. We call in and while we're on the phone, the second plane hits the tower. We looked at each other and said, this is not a fire. This is terrorism. We told our driver, get to CBS. We were among the last few hundred cars to cross the 59th Street Bridge into Manhattan. We ended up getting stuck in gridlock, jumped out of the car. I ran to a hotel, which was right there to make reservations. I knew we were going to be there for five days. And while I'm on the phone trying to do this, the person in the assignment desk said, oh my God, a plane just hit the Pentagon. We did not know if we were under attack. We dropped the phone, walked to CBS, and spent the next two days there doing live shots from the top of a building with Manhattan that was as silent as a closet. It looked like a set, a movie set. There wasn't a traffic noise. There wasn't a bird. There were just buildings with lights like a movie set and empty and silent. The next day, we are there near ground zero in a truck with masks on and people going by with signs asking, have you seen, have you seen? And we knew we would never see those people. And then all the food trucks and services coming in. And the saddest thing was that we knew that they would never be used because there were no survivors. There's no way I can channel for you what that was. It was unbelievable. And speaking of hard and speaking of survivors, you are a three-time cancer survivor. Can you share with our listeners your cancer journey? And I remember you once telling me in a conversation, you know, Candy, I just happen to get cancer a lot. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Because otherwise, I'm a very healthy person. I have big energy, I sleep well, I eat well, I don't get your common cold or whatever, but you know, I happen to get cancer and I am unique in my family. There's not a lot of cancer in my family. Certainly nobody else that has ovarian cancer, which I've had twice, no malignant melanoma. And I had these cancers before I was 35 years old and they were misdiagnosed every single time. So it is a real miracle that I'm here. But it has to do with hard work and being a pain in the neck, which and I intuition, am. intuition, which you once told me. And intuition, which is, I knew the answers I was getting were not right. The very first cancer, 
I was about to get married in about 10 days, and I was sitting watching the Phil Donahue show, the guy who invented Oprah. Phil Donahue had a woman on who said she had cancer of the colon. It all started with a mole on her leg. And I looked down and I had a mole on my leg. And I'd had that mole for about a year. And I thought, you know, I should probably get this checked out. I'm getting married. Let me cross all the T's and dot all the I's. So I called a dermatologist because it's on my leg. And I went to him and he looked at it and he said, it doesn't look like anything. And I said, well, doc, I want a biopsy. And I knew that word. And he said, well okay, but you won't get the results for a while. And I said, no, no, I need the results right away. I'm getting married. He said, well, you'll have to carry it over to the lab yourself. I said, hey, no problem. He takes off half the mole, puts it in a jar. I walk across the Chestnut Hill Mall to the lab, give it to them. And two days later, they call me frantic. And they called me at Evening Magazine. Joyce, we are 99% sure you have malignant melanoma. You're going to have to check yourself into a hospital. They're going to be brain scans, liver scans, skin grafts. I said, what? What are you talking about? Are you telling me I have some kind of cancer? Because they never use that word. but They use the word malignant. They said, yes. And I said, well, I don't have any insurance. Is this going to be expensive? Oh, yes, this is going to be expensive. I said, is this going to be painful? Well, yeah, there's going to be brain scans, livers. I said, well, I'm getting married. No, you're not getting married. You're going into a hospital. I had to put the phone down. Robin Young ended up finishing that call. I went home and started packing for the hospital. I was getting married at a double wedding ceremony with my brother and his soon-to-be bride, who happened to be the chief radiation therapist at University Hospital. She said, Joyce, you need a second opinion. And I said, well, Why? Could there be a disagreement about whether or not I have cancer? Ha, little did I know that there could be a disagreement about that and about the treatment. She said, I'm going to arrange for you to see a specialist in malignant melanoma tomorrow morning. And the next morning I went in and saw Dr. Peter Deckers. He had already looked at my scans, which my sister-in-law facilitated. And he said, okay, good news and bad news. The bad news is this is a very vicious and aggressive tumor and it has to come off right away. Number two, I think we've caught this in time, but can you handle a local anesthetic? I said, you bet. And I thought he was preparing me for amputation, but he took me in there, put up a little screen. They took that thing off. They gave me 17 stitches in my leg and something that looked like a staple remover that my husband was supposed to use to remove the staples on our honeymoon. And boy, was that romantic. (laughs) He did this in a hotel room in Barcelona. We got the biopsy results. I got married. My chances of recovery, because they caught it in time, were 95% chance of complete recovery. And then I thought, okay, wow, that was unbelievable. Ten years go by. I'm doing a yoga workout in my room. And suddenly I'm cold. And I think, oh, I forgot to put the heat up. I check the heat. No, the heat's up. I'm cold. Within minutes, I get violent abdominal pain, nausea, And I realized something is really wrong. I get myself into the car, drive myself to the nearest hospital, and barely made it in the door when they grabbed me, got me into the ER, and eventually checked me into the hospital, diagnosing a pelvic infection and putting me on intravenous antibiotics, which they promptly released me after, I think, about a week with a clean bill of health. I knew I wasn't well. I knew that I wasn't 100%, and that's the intuition. And you have to trust your body because you live in your body and you know it better than anybody else. 
I called another doctor. She said, that doesn't sound right. They checked me into another hospital and they said, yep, it's your appendix. It's got to come right out. Once again, they wheel me into surgery. They look, it's not my appendix. It's a ruptured ovarian tumor, which they remove and close me up. And because it was stage 1A and they got it really early and for whatever reason, my body had sent up signals really fast because I told you I'm a very volatile, reactive person. So my body let me know. They said, have your family and then come back and we'll remove everything else. I never did get pregnant. And a year and a half later, I found myself on a plane to Nairobi to go on safari with my husband. And as we're coming in for a landing in Nairobi, I'm racked with abdominal pain. And I'm wondering, is this the flu? Is this cancer? Do I turn around and fly back? Do I check myself into a hospital in Nairobi? What do I do? I go to a hotel. I hole up for a couple of days. I feel well enough to do the rest of the safari. We hike into the Virunga Mountains and meet the mountain gorillas. It was unbelievable. I come home. I go to the doctor. They say, oh, pancreatitis. Check me into a hospital. So again, misdiagnosed. I get out in five days. I'm having more pain. They say, this is not that disease, but let's do a CA-125 blood test. We eventually get the results. They're not good. It's clear now. I've had a recurrence of ovarian cancer. We set a date for surgery. I don't make that date. The night before the surgery, I get rushed in again with another ruptured tumor. And now it's all over my abdominal cavity. And they remove everything. And I have six months of chemotherapy. And the prognosis wasn't quite as good, but it was good enough. And I'm still here. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. JC Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. With cancer, the earliest diagnosis is the best diagnosis. The sooner you figure out what's going on, that is the single most important prognosticator of how a person will do. Early detection. You had mentioned when you were talking about these three cancer diagnoses that there was a point where it looked as if you were never going to have children. And I have met the most beautiful girl in the world who happens to live in this house named Annalise. Oh, yes. You and your husband were able to bring Annalise home. Yes, it was incredible, really. Uh, and I wouldn't have her any other way. Yeah, I've, I've been very reticent about it because this isn't just my story. This is also Annalise's story. 
I find myself very respectful of her privacy and experience. What I can say is that I knew we wanted to have a family. The cancer delayed that. Then I decided I didn't want to adopt. We might have, but was there another way? I couldn't give birth, but my husband could give birth in a sense. He could contribute genetic material, as I like to call it. And we said, how could we do this? And this was 30 years ago. I went to my therapist and I said, am I crazy? Is there a way to do it? She said, there is a way. That's all she said. And I realized, of course there is. Surrogacy. I immediately got on the phone with my doctor, who immediately could point me to two people who were doing this locally, two people who were having a surrogate carry their baby. And they pointed me to a person in California who ran an agency where this was still like, you know, the Wild West. It really was amazing. I think it was almost illegal in many states, I think in most places. So what we were doing was pretty adventuresome, but it was what we wanted to do. And we brought home the most beautiful girl in the world. Role models. Have you had them in your life? Oh, my mom. Huge role model for me. My mom, enthusiastic, creative, energetic, smart, hardworking, and childlike in some way. You know, she had childlike enthusiasms and she could be worked up about something all over again, you know. So this, this is, I think I share some of that with her. Part of me is still like 12. <laughs> oh, the nuns for me in school were so disciplined and spiritual and focused and humble, hardworking and in community. I love that. I love everything about them. And I love those habits. <laughs> <laughs> mother love. What is that? Mother love. Oh, it's, it's a whole bunch of things. Obviously, it's protective. It's nurturing in the best sense of that word. Your child is not an extension of yourself. Your child is who they are. A mother's job is to love their child into being and becoming themselves. We shouldn't project on them, burden them, and we must be as real with them as we possibly can be and accept them fully. This is love. This is love. This is every kind of love, but particularly a mother's love. Reinvention has been the word that we've used a couple times in this conversation. And it really is a word that I think defines who you are. It defines your career, and it also defines your continued success. Because what you've done is become embedded in the arts community as someone who loves it, understands it, advocates for it. You created Joyce's Choices. So we want to tell everybody about Joyce'sChoices.com. I do movie and theater reviews on Joyce'sChoices.com. I haven't spent a lot of time promoting it. I just write it. It's a longer form. I probably should expand it. I probably should promote it and advertise it. I don't do any of those things. Right now, it's a platform that people can find. I'm happy when they do. And I'm very grateful to have an audience out there who still wants to hear from me. And I need a platform to digest what I see so that I can put it back out there. 
So I created this outlet for artists to have more of a platform to get the word out about what they're doing. When we started our interview, I said that the list of awards you've won, now we have endowment scholarships, we have honorary doctorates. There are so many awards and accolades here. What are you most proud of? None of the awards. It's nice to have an Emmy sitting on my desk, you know, and I love that picture of Steven Tyler and me hanging out together with his arm around me. And I love me sitting next to Robert Redford, you know, in a photo that I have. But what am I most proud of? I don't know. I, that's a hard thing to say. These things disappear right away. I guess I'm proud that I've been able to find some kind of a balance in my life, that I haven't lost my perspective on what's important to me which is a balance of all kinds of things. Because as I wanted to raise my daughter to be exactly who she is, I am still trying to raise myself to be exactly who I am, to be the best self that I can be. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I think I know the answer to this question. Well, how do I get around it? I look at it like a problem and I say, what do I have to do to overcome this? And I try to enlist all the help I can get to do that. I look at it logically. I try to divorce my emotional self from it, although my emotions always propel me to doing it. But it's logic and hard work that execute. So we have to always have both. If you don't have the oomph to get it done, it won't get done. And if you have the oomph, but no wherewithal, it won't get done. Final question. I believe that women value success differently than men do. I think we see our lives in chapters, and I'm guessing your definition of success has probably changed since you first got started in your career in television, even way back to when you were being a school teacher. Right now, at this very moment, what does success mean to you? Success for me has always meant being the most myself I can be. And that may sound really self-serving or selfish or whatever, but I always feel it's what I want for myself and it's what I want for everyone around me. And it's what we want to be facilitating for each other. We are beings who are unique. There is no one else like us. And this is true for everybody. Katherine Hepburn used to give that advice to actors when she'd say, don't imitate me. Don't imitate somebody else. Be you. No one else has that. And if you explore every corner of your being and try to really take that somewhere, that's successful. And you know when you are fulfilled. Let me thank you so much for being our guest this week on The Story Behind Her Success. Candy, I love you, and you are your most best self, and I, I am so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?